what we might need to do. I know that we had considerable anticipation this spring that perhaps this would be the year that some of those promises that we have been reading about that might happen in the first month could occur and that things would improve uh, a great deal. I began to wonder about that, oh, sometime before the first month and during it if that was really the case because it did not seem that things in this world had come apart sufficiently uh, for the Garden of Eden and the conditions of protection that God said he would put around his church. I didn't feel that they were advancing rapidly enough for this yet to be a need. And yet, you have to consider several things. Do some of the things that are going to happen have something to do with us? Do they have something to do with uh, what we have to accomplish first? Uh, how much of it does God use human instruments to do is one of the major questions. Now, undoubtedly, if God saw fit, he could do all kinds of things in very immediate fashion, in very dramatic fashion. But through history, it is, does appear that God has used people to do a great deal of what he wants done. That's the way he's chosen to operate. So he's always looking for the right kind of people to do what he wants done. And then he puts them through whatever they have to go through uh, to get them ready to do what he wants done. Now, there is no doubt he will intervene. The Bible is full of those things here at the end and is going to do some majestic signs and wonders and some awesome and terrible things before Christ returns. Now, as the Jews say to each other, next year in Jerusalem, we have adopted somewhat of that same approach. Next year, such and such will happen, or then the following year, such and such will happen, because we live in hope, and yet sometimes it can get frustrating and discouraging as well, with conditions we have to go through, and so on. But you know, if I stand back and look at things, even though we may get emotionally frustrated and we wish things would happen faster and we're putting up with a little difficulty finding jobs here and there and, and life is kind of on a downhill instead of an uphill go as it used to be in America, it can be somewhat frustrating. But at the same time, we really haven't gone through a whole lot yet not compared to what some of God's people have gone through in the past in preparation for what God was about to do. Even in Egypt as slaves, life wasn't too bad. They had to work for the Egyptians, uh, and that's what life was all about. And here, we're kind of in the same position. For the most part, we have to work for somebody else, for corporations, so our time, our energies, our goals and purposes, even as human beings, are hard to fulfill because you have to put in so many hours to get so much pay 
to be able to almost pay the bills. So it's almost like we're slaves to the system, and they push the prices right to the point where you can't quite do it. They did it after World War II, and then they pulled the women into the workforce, and then they raised prices so that two salaries could not quite do it for the most part. And we being greedy people like to spend everything we have and we like to spend what we do not yet have. So we have very willingly gone into the slavery of this system. And now we find ourselves trying to dig our way out of it, trying to stop the habits of our past, try to manage differently, and try to get all of this off our back. And it is not always easy. We have to unlearn the things that this society and culture has trained us to do. To have what we want, when we want it, not wait until we can afford it, and slowly work ourselves into a deeper and deeper hole that it is then very, very difficult to climb out of. And I'm not... Uh, chiding us in that sense about that. It's just what everyone has done. It's the system that Satan set up and that people in Washington and in corporations and other places have because of their own greed, their own desires, put us into. They want us to be their servants and their slaves. They want us to work hard and make money for them, and just give us a little bit back, just enough to keep us going. So we find ourselves, really, in slavery. Americans cling to the idea that they are still the land of the free and the home of the brave, and that is an outright joke. We are not free, and we are not brave. We have knuckled under to the system and become slaves to it. Now, they're going to start making us continue our toil without uh, things to hold the bricks together, without straw. It's going to get worse and worse. I do believe that God knows exactly what he's doing. He is the perfection of timing. He knows just when everything will happen exactly as he wants it to happen. And we are here scratching our heads, trying to figure out just what he wants, how he wants it done, and trying to figure out when he's going to do what. But that's one of the things that he is very cleverly disguised. And we can read the Bible, and we can see clues here and there, but it's hard to get the overall picture and I do not think that he has put the timing in here in such a way that we currently can discern that. It is in his jurisdiction to know the times and the seasons and exactly when he plans to do what. And I see people in the church second-guessing. I see us try to second-guess at times, and it's okay to examine and understand that things are close. But... People try to, get, you know, figure out the numbers exactly when things are going to happen, and there's always something from somewhere else that seems to throw a monkey wrench into your most careful planning. 
And I've done it too, so that's not necessarily a criticism. We want to know how and when. Uh, suffice it to say that it's close. But since God has allowed this thing to apparently go on for another year, what kind of year is it going to be? What does God expect of us during this time? What can we be doing? Things don't always happen exactly like we might wish or hope that they would. I think that we are going to have a very tumultuous year ahead of us. There are now cracks in the systems. People within the system, the politicians, are beginning to fight with one another. And this is going to lead to much, much greater problems as time goes on. Now, is it time for us in any way to give up and to think because things didn't happen the way we might have hoped or wished this year that we would be discouraged? I want to point out two or three scriptures here right away. Psalm 37 and verse 7 says, Rest in the eternal and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked devices to pass. So he tells us, don't fret, don't worry about the things you see going on around you. Wait patiently for God. Now, patience is one of the fruits of the Spirit of God that is very, very difficult to come by. They all are, but for human beings, impatience is an Achilles heel. We want what we want now, and our society and culture around us has trained us that way. Satan wants instant gratification, uh, and human beings do as well. So they can play on that and want us and, and lead us real easily into becoming frustrated and impatient and perhaps even sometimes frustrated with God, which we don't dare go there. He says, cease from anger, forsake wrath, fret not yourself in any way to do evil. Of course, in the New Testament it tells us not to give up and begin to eat and drink and be merry and go the way of the world because we're frustrated or impatient or it doesn't seem like it's ever going to happen, so we might as well eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Now perhaps it's easy to get into that frame of mind. It's hard to keep trying, to keep working, to maintain a patient, trustful, faithful attitude with God. But that's something that we're instructed to do. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the eternal, they shall inherit the earth. So this promise is given here. It's repeated in Revelation 5.10. The meek shall inherit the earth. If we are not arrogant and vain and proud and selfish and therefore impatient in our approach, God says if we will wait patiently and be meek, that this thing will happen, we will inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall not be. Yes, you shall diligently consider his place, and it shall not be, but the meek shall inherit the earth. 
and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Uh, that is quoted by John in Revelation 5.10, Matthew 5.5. 5. The meek shall inherit the earth. Christ quoted this directly. Uh, Hebrews 6, and verse 15. Now I'm sure here no one is frustrated, discouraged, or impatient, uh, but uh, I thought it would be good to address this in case we let ourselves get into that kind of an attitude. Hebrews 6, verse 15 uh, and so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. This is speaking of Abraham. Well, you remember the story about Abraham and Sarah, the promises God had made, and yet it went on year after year after year, and Isaac wasn't born. They both went through a change in life where uh, the possibilities were not even there. And then at a certain time, God changed all that, and they did have the child that God had promised. Now through all that, they might have been discouraged, frustrated, wondering, you know, and yet they didn't give up. They kind of laughed <laughs> at, a, at a moment, said, yeah, right, sure, uh-huh. Uh, but at the same time, Underneath that was a belief. Now you and I might at times say, oh, woe is me, and the things are too hard, and this is tough, and I'm not going to make it, and it's too hard, uh, overcoming is, is so difficult, I seem to fight it and can't seem to change the way I ought to change, and yet we have to stay with it, even as they did. So it's not a time to be discouraged or give up because God's promises are here. It's just that they don't always get fulfilled when we think. You look at Abraham's life. And he had to wait and wait for that child. Then he had to wait for it to grow up. And then God said, take him out and kill him. Now that would frustrate and discourage you and me, wouldn't it? If we had waited that long for a child and then saw him grow and think, there's my heir and he's going to have grandchildren, and then God says, go kill your kid. That's why Abraham is the father of the faithful through his entire life. And he didn't even bat an eye when God said, go kill Isaac. He just saddled up took Isaac with him, built an altar, put the wood on it, strapped his son down, raised a knife, and God said, don't do that. Now I know, Abraham, that you will do anything I say. Anything I say, I know you will do. Does God know you and me that well? Does he know that anything he instructs us to do, we will do, without hesitation, because we know he is God Almighty. Now, he needs to know that about you and me. He knows it about Abraham, and he holds him up as our example. And he patiently endured and obtained that promise. Now, he still hasn't obtained the promise of eternal life. Abraham's still moldering in his grave, awaiting that. But then that's something we all understand. 
See, that's something that happens at the resurrection when Christ returns. So that one doesn't really bother us. But it's these things in the interim for our comfort, for our pleasure, for our perhaps faith and trust to some degree, that God will perform those things. And he does tell us in Isaiah, I think it's about 55, 6, somewhere along there, that he will do them before the flesh actually fails before him. He may let us get pretty close to failing. I don't know how close he's going to take it. I don't know. I do see him intervening in our lives at times, not in the way that those promises are written, but enough to keep us moving, enough to keep us here, enough to keep us alive, if you will. And that's not to say that we might not have another death or two or three or whatever. I don't know those things. We've had a few. But they didn't cause us to give up, did they? We're still here. So God may put us through quite a bit. Who knows? Look at what Israel had to go through. There again, the slavery got deeper and harder. They had to work harder to survive, uh, including the whip. And then, when all those plagues started coming on Egypt, they started going through them as well. So when I say it didn't look like things were shaping up, even though I had hope, I wondered, can this actually happen because the conditions had not worsened to that point. They are getting worse, and we can see cracks in the system, can't we? But it hasn't come apart. It hasn't gotten so bad that we can barely survive. And that seems to be the pattern of the past. Let's look at one more here in the book of Habakkuk. I think we probably remember this book and the message that is here, and I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on it, but just as a little reminder. See, Haggai wrote just before Zephaniah, which talks about the crash in chapter 1 and gathering ourselves and how God will preserve a meek and humble people for himself and tells them to work and be prepared because there is a big job coming up of building the temple, and so on. But before that, Habakkuk was sitting here, and this is in, in the sequence of the stories here. This is just before that crash came, okay? And Habakkuk says at the beginning, O oh Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry to you of violence and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are in front of me. And there are that those that raise up strife and contention. And the law is slacked or weak or powerless and judgment doesn't seem to come forth. So he's getting frustrated at the way conditions around him were and he wanted it fixed and God didn't seem to be giving the fix. So he became impatient and frustrated. And then it talks about how God will raise up the Chaldeans or Babylonians and that there will be trouble and problems. And then he says, well, why do all these things happen and you don't seem to deliver us? Then finally, in chapter 2, he said, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch 
to see what he will say to me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. So he realized he had worked himself into an impatient, frustrated, uh, unfaithful, if you will, attitude over the way things were, the frustrations of dealing with the world around him and with himself. So he finally said, I think I better back off and sit down and watch what's happening and see what God says and how God even reproves me. In other words, I realize my attitude may not be what it ought to be, and I better sit back and see what God has to say and how he'll correct the attitude that I've worked myself into. And the Eternal answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables, pages, that he may run that reads it. In other words, things are coming when you are up to this position where frustration and impatience begins to sit in, set in, that it's time, or the time is drawing very near. So he said, he that reads this, let him run. In other words, there is a hurry mode. For the vision is yet for an appointed time. The things that God says he is going to do, he has a specific appointed time for. And us getting frustrated doesn't change that. When you're pregnant and the seventh, eighth month comes along, you get somewhat frustrated. And you don't like cow or elephant or anything like that mentioned because that's about the way you feel if you've told me the way you really felt. You want the time to be there. You want to quit carrying that thing out here and carry it up here. It gets frustrating. You become somewhat impatient. Get it over with. But there's an appointed time. It is there until ripe. Until the time has arrived, then it happens. And all your wishing and all your frustration and pain and being kicked in the middle of the night and waked up isn't going to go away until the appointed time. But at the end, it shall speak and not lie. It is coming. Though it tarry, though it seems long, wait for it. Uh, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. God says these things will happen, and there comes a point where it will not tarry. It will happen. It's not going to be way off anymore. It's near, about to occur. And when it gets to that point, it won't be long. We need those words because we get frustrated. We see things coming apart. We see the signs, and yet we don't see everything happen. You know, I have mixed emotions about it. I see people, I meet people, I talk with people out in this world, and I see their frustrations. They are, some of them, beginning to wake up to what's really going on, and I talked to a few here and there on this trip as I ran into them casually about their worldview. And more and more of them are beginning to see that there's something radically wrong. 
And they don't know the answers. They know things are going to get dramatically worse. They see it happening now. And they're very frustrated. But you know when all this comes down, their lives are going to be made very, very difficult and most of them are going to die in it. And they're nice people, lovable people, they're human beings. They have feelings and emotions, they love their children, they love their grandchildren, they want to see things be better, and yet they're not willing at all to listen to the things that would cause things to get better. They want their way. And it's going to take all this to change it. But when I interact with them a little bit here and there, and I see their feelings and their desires in life, I don't want to see all this come down on them. It's a hurtful thing. I look at some of my children and grandchildren I was just reminded of. And they're not understanding things I would like them to understand. But what can I do about it? Nothing. It would do no good to preach to them. They would just turn further away. So my heart bleeds for them and what I see about to happen. So on the one hand, yes, I want to see this happen. I want to see God's people blessed. I want to see the millennium and Christ return. And yet, man, the terrible conditions and the tribulation that are coming, God himself says, don't desire the day of the Lord. It's going to be a terrible, terrible time. So in one way, I want to see it hurry and get over. And yet on the other hand, to see all of this unleashed on the people of this world and us peripherally to some degree, it gives me pause. I'm just thankful we have God who knows how and when and what he's doing with us and what he wants us to be doing. So the message from God continues, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. He who is ruled by his own selfishness, arrogance, vanity, that's not upright. But the just shall live by his faith, his trust, his waiting patiently for God. Do we entrust our lives to an eternal creator who loves us more than we begin to realize he does? Do we trust our children, our grandchildren, that are not with us, do not understand to God? That's all I can say. As Father, they're yours more than they're mine. Take care of them in the best way for them and their eternal salvation in the long run whether you call them now or later, is up to you. That's the attitude I have to have toward them. Otherwise, you know, I live my life dithering around about something I can do nothing about. I love them. I don't want to see them hurt. But I understand that, like the rest of the world, they're not ready to listen to God. And it's going to take Him, in whatever way He chooses, whenever He chooses, to bring them to him. I have a struggle just bringing me to him, much less them. And my judgment is now. There's maybe later. 
Now, let's take a, a little look at what is coming. And here I want to go to Jeremiah 50. I think it's very pertinent right now. We're beginning to see the states of the United States questioning the federal government. We're beginning to see them all over the nation passing laws that are against the federal government, telling the federal government to get out of their affairs. Now, the, the feds have held the states in their grip and under control by either offering or cutting off funds. And now, the states are out of funds, but the feds aren't willing to give them funds anyway. You know, California is in deep and desperate financial straits. Unemployment money, and now they're talking about welfare and various uh, social programs having to just simply be cut off. But their budget is only at a $21 billion shortfall. Sounds like a lot of money to you and me, but that's not much there in that sense. And Arizona is in terrible shape. So is Florida. Uh, different states talk about Michigan. Detroit is coming apart. People are moving out and they're starting to bulldoze down shopping centers and houses and take down the infrastructure instead of building more. And it would only take a few billion in each state to turn it around. Now they'll give a trillion dollars to their cronies in corporate America in the world and the big banks, but they won't give it to the states. And the states are beginning to, wait a minute here, something's wrong. So they're beginning to rebel. And we see cracks in the system. Well, this chapter, 5051 of Jeremiah, talks quite a bit about the circumstances that we are now entering and are in. Uh, do you realize how much unrest is going to happen when the Social Security checks are cut off? How many people in this country, how many people in this room depend on their Social Security check to have money to buy food? Quite a few. And in this nation, if you cut off all the Social Security checks, just think how many starving, hungry, indigent people who could not pay rent, could not buy food, could not buy heat or air conditioning, could not buy clothes. Any of the necessities of life would simply be cut off just like that. Welfare programs where people are just barely getting by and they have food stamps, they have different social programs. Whack all that off, where would they be? And now unemployment benefits are running out and they've renewed them a time or two or three and now they're beginning to say, we can't do that anymore. It's cut off. If you can't get a job and you can't get an employment, how are you going to buy food? Now, we're coming up against that in this country. And I don't think that we spoiled Americans who are used to having our needs taken care of with all kinds of social services are ready to just sit down and starve to death. Don't think that's in the cards. At some point, there's going to be civil unrest that will turn into civil war. 
we're facing that in our country. And it's not just a high-eyed guess. We see it beginning to happen now. This state of Arizona that we are currently in today has just passed some laws. And people in Congress and the President of the United States are making jokes about this state and what we, our legislature and governor, have done. And it's not going over well with some citizens in this state. They're not happy about being made fun of and joked about because they're trying to preserve life from illegal aliens. And the U.S. government wants the illegal aliens here. They want them here very badly because it will help bring down the country. But some people don't want their country taken down. So there is a huge conflict building. Let's look at this again. We've gone through Jeremiah 50 and 51 before, but I think that it's very pertinent to look at it and understand what God says as we look at the news and we see what's happening around us, let's take a review of what God says. Because really, isn't that all that matters, is what He says. The word that the Eternal spoke against Babylon, and we went through quite a series to show that this nation is the representation of Babylon, that what we are going through is because of a Babylonian government over godless Israelites. And this is about the latter days. This is an ancient history. Look at chapter 49, verse 39. It shall come to pass in the latter days that I will bring again the captivity of Elam, says the Eternal. So the whole, this whole context is dealing with what will happen right at the end. So he opens it in chapter 50. The word that the Eternal spoke against Babylon and against the land of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophets. Declare you among the peoples and publish and set up a standard. Publish and conceal not. Say, Babylon is taken. Baal is confounded. We just saw a movie recently which showed Baal and the other gods of the pagans and heathens all over the capital city of the United States Corporation of America. It's not even part of the United States, it's a separate corporation, but it rules over us increasingly with a rod of iron. And Baal is right there on the portices of the buildings, all over them. But this is going to be destroyed. Her images are broken in pieces. Now this is looking forward to a time when God says it's going to happen. For out of the north there comes up a nation against her, which shall make her land desolate, and none shall dwell therein. They shall remove, they shall depart both man and beast. It is going to become so untenable that the American dream is going to become the American nightmare. And people are going to want to leave here instead of come here. Now it's beginning to get there. More and more I see articles about people who are expatriating. They're picking up their marbles and moving somewhere else. It's an increasing flow and getting bigger as time goes on of Americans who see the handwriting on the wall. And I read an article the other day by somebody who had moved elsewhere and he said, 
you guys don't realize how bad it is there. You're like a frog in warm water, and it's getting hotter and hotter, and you're cold-blooded, you're getting used to it. He said, there are quite a few countries now where the lifestyle, standard of living, is higher than it is now in America. And he said, I would not go back for anything. I love America. I grew up there, but I wouldn't want to be there now. And if you think it's bad now, he said, you don't even begin to realize what's coming. Saying the same thing without this that this says. I trust this. And therefore, when I hear him saying that, and I know what's here, I know the man's right. Because this is what counts. And they can say, this is going to happen or that's going to happen, but if I don't find it here, then I don't worry about it. I'm just concerned about what this says, and then fitting what other people are saying into this, because this you can trust. In those days and in that time, says the Eternal, the children of Israel shall come. They and the children of Judah together going and weeping, they shall go and seek the Eternal, their God. So in the latter days, just as the forces are building up to destroy this country, people here and there are going to begin to wake up and weep and cry and moan and seek God because they realize this is coming. Now this is going to be people who are already basically converted. They've been called. And they will begin to truly seek God. At least about 10% of them. They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces pointed that way, saying, Come and let us join ourselves to the Eternal in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. So at some point, they're going to begin to realize that some of God's people are gathering around Zion, the true Zion, and they're going to begin to want to go there. Now they are the people who understand the perpetual or second covenant. People who have been offered the conditions of that covenant. And only those who have been shown the truth have at this time been offered that covenant. So this has to be talking about people who were called into the church, whose minds were opened. There are a lot of people who think they're living under the second covenant, and they aren't, because they are not following the conditions of the covenant, and they don't even know the conditions. They think that all you have to do is accept the Lord, and everything will be fine. They've done away with the commandments, they don't understand the perpetual covenant. If you don't understand something, even know what it is, you can't keep it. So this has to be talking about people who do understand. They understand suddenly what God is doing and where he is doing it. Zion is the church, as we saw in Hebrews 12, 22, and 3. And Zion is a physical location on the earth where God originally worked. So that's where they're going to begin to point. So that time cannot be far away, can it? Because we see the conditions where the world is beginning to gang up on this nation. And we have already planted the seeds of our demise. By printing trillions of dollars, we have guaranteed incredible runaway inflation. And now in Europe, they have done the same thing. 
Isn't it strange that they promised 30 billion euros to bail out Greece, and then a week later it's up to what? 750 billion, and then almost a trillion. They're, start, they're starting to talk in the news about the trillion dollar bailout in Europe. Same deal we did here. And who is giving most of that money? The Germans. What are they doing? They are going to accomplish, just like that, what they tried to do in World War II 70 years ago. They tried to do it with military might then. Now all they have to do is pass out the money, and then they will be able to control the politics and everything else in all those countries. They only needed $30 billion to take care of the Greek problem. How did it suddenly get to a trillion? There's something weird going on, isn't there? It's all about control. And what's happening in this country is getting more and more about controlling you and me and making sure Israelites disappear. So they'll start, some of them, beginning to seek God. And then God talks. My people has been lost sheep. Their shepherds have caused them to go astray. The ministry led people in wrong directions. How did we get so complacent? In some respects, it had to do, in the Worldwide Church of God, with all the money coming in, and the ministry began to, at least in uh, Pasadena and Big Sandy and places like that, began to live like kings. Fine mansions, swimming pool and a triple car garage and fancy cars in it and airplanes and all that stuff. And they lived a lifestyle nobody else could live. But they got complacent and they quit preaching the Word. They'd preach about God, but they didn't preach this Word. And then everybody else got complacent as well. So they led them astray and into a Laodicean, weakened, who cares, eh, ho-hum attitude. And people began to just drift. They weren't really working daily at overcoming. It's easy to get into a drifting Laodicean attitude where we're not really working at it. And it's a danger we face right here. We've had relatively, relative peace lately, and here we are, and it's easy to just go through life. We work, we do, we do this, we do that, but where is the urgency that we really need? It's just so easy for it to go away. And the cares of life in this world become the dominant things in our lives. It's human, it's natural, it's normal, but it's not what God would have. He's turned them away on the mountains. They've gone from mountain to hill. They've forgotten their resting place. And all them that found them... Oh, I lost my place. ...have devoured them, verse 7. And their adversary said, We offend not, because they have sinned against the eternal, the habitation of justice, even the Lord, the hope of their fathers. So people won't have pity. They'll say, Well, they're getting what they deserve. Who cares? Then he says, remove out of the middle of Babylon and go forth out of the land of the Chaldeans and be as the he-goats before the flocks. There's a challenge. Get out of it. 
Well, we picked up and left land, home, family, and everything, and came out here, and yet, increasingly, it seems, we bring the world with us, and we get all involved in uh, things that take us away from God. Whether it's a TV screen, a computer screen, a telephone screen, a, you know, we're, we're addicted to screens. And a guy was just telling me the other day, he says, he says, I see these kids and all they're into is all this technical electronics. He wasn't in the church. He just said, I've got this grandkid. And I said, let's go on a hike. Let's go out and can I take my iPod with me? No, I wanted you to listen to the birds. You know? But the kid, he said, just becomes agitated and frustrated if he can't see a screen somewhere, if he's not plugged in to his phone or to a computer or to a game or something. And you know what? This is taking over our entire nation. Those screens are addictive. My computer screen, I have to be careful. Sit down in front of that thing and I don't want to read the news or this or that. First thing you know, I'm beginning to think, I'm wasting time. I only need so much of this. But then it's hard to actually turn it off and stand up and walk away from it because you become affixed to it. So I'm having to coach myself, Daryl. You've seen what you need to see. Now get up and go do something else. It's hard. But... They've got screens everywhere now. Somebody was telling the other day that now, they saw this in a meeting at a, at a big corporation, they had a piece of paper laying on the desk, and they had a paint that they put on it that was invisible, and it would pick the television signals out of the air and show them on the picture, I mean on the paper. They could read radio or TV right there on a piece of paper. The flat screen TVs may be on their way out because they can now make a screen painted white. They can put on the wall anywhere and TV will just come out of the air onto it. Can you believe that? But it's getting now where it can be everywhere. I have a film I want us to watch called When Soda Pop Cans Have Screens. I mentioned that a while back. I still have it and I haven't shown it to you. But they're going to have a screen everywhere so that everywhere you look, there's a screen to look at. They are working on the addictive capacity of the human mind. And there are studies that show that when our kids are plugged into screens, their mentality goes down, and even though they say, well, this will, this will help increase their knowledge and, and educate them. No, it takes them the other direction. So we need to be aware. We need to read up. We need to understand. And we need to limit the amount of screen time our children have. And that we have. That's why I mentioned me first. Be aware of what this world is doing to us and how transfixed we can get on some of these things. And if the kid's happy, 
We just leave them alone. Not only that, but it gets too hard to take it away from them because they kick and scream, figuratively, but they don't want that taken away. That's what they have come to be addicted to. And it's an addiction that gets just as strong as drugs or anything else. Now, are screens wrong? No, not per se. But when they begin to take over our lives, they become wrong because they're taking away from us life. We're just glued to that. For lo, I will raise and cause to come up against Babylon an assembly of great nations from the north country. They shall set themselves in array against her. From there she shall be taken and spoiled. Uh, It said, verse 11, Because you were glad, because you rejoiced, O you destroyers of my heritage. Those people in the center of Babylon and Washington, D.C. are taking away the heritage the promised land given to Israel. And we're letting it happen. Because you are grown fat as a heifer at grass and bellow as bulls. They have their bull market, don't they? And they are sitting there feeding their cronies the the produce of our lives by the hundreds of billions and trillions of dollars. So they're sitting there destroying the heritage of God and bellow as bulls. Now, we could have read this two or three years ago and maybe understood it, but we can understand it a lot better today, can't we? After what they've done and fed it to their friends and made sure that their pockets are going to be lined when they come out of office. Your mother shall be sore confounded. She that bore you shall be ashamed. Our mother Israel here. Behold, the hindermost of the nations shall be a wilderness, a dry land, and a desert. We will become the hindermost of nations, the tail end, in the worst shape of any nation on earth. We were the head, we will become the tail, as it is expressed in other places. And the heathen will rise up above us, and it's happening. The Chinese are rising above us economically. So are many other peoples. China now buys more cars per year than the United States does. That's always been one of our claims to fame, is we have more automobiles than anybody. Now they're selling more in China than here. Because of the wrath of the eternal, it shall not be inhabited, but it shall be wholly desolate. Everyone that goes by Babylon shall be astonished and hiss at her plagues, laugh, chuckle at what is happening to us. Put yourselves in array against Babylon round about. All you that bend the bow, shoot at her, spare no arrows, arrows, for she has sinned against the eternal. So God calls upon the nations to come in and destroy that which is ungodly. We were supposed to be the example nation to the world. Now, what an example we are. I won't go into all of that. We know it. Shout against her roundabout. She has given her hand. She's married the world. Married the pagan system. 
And that system is centered in Washington, D.C., and we gave our lives over to it. And we depended on it to take care of us from cradle to grave. And it's going away. For it is vengeance of the eternal. Take vengeance upon her, as she has done, do to her. Cut off the sower from Babylon, and him that handles the sickle in the time of harvest. Uh, the harvest is going to stop. The crops are going to fail. For fear of the oppressing sore, they shall turn everyone to his people, and they shall flee everyone to his own land. As I said, there's an expatriate movement beginning to happen. And before long, you're going to see Mexicans headed for the border. You're going to see Chinese headed for the border. They're going to get out of here because things are going to be so bad, I'm going home where things are better than they are here. The flood that is coming in will be a flood going out. Israel is a scattered sheep. The lions have driven him away. First, the king of Assyria has devoured him. And last, this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has broken his bones. Well, the king of Babylon is centered in Washington, D.C. The modern-day typification of Nebuchadnezzar. Therefore, thus says the Eternal of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will punish the king of Babylon and his land as I have punished the king of Assyria. And I will bring Israel again to his habitation, and he shall feed on Carmel and Bashan, and his soul shall be satisfied upon Mount Ephraim and Gilead. Now once you prove that the United States is the end-time Babylon under the aegis and control of Babylon and Washington, then when it talks about feeding in Ephraim, uh, it's obvious this is Ephraim. And this is the original promised land because this is where God is going to take care of us. In those days and in that time, says the Eternal, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought for and there shall be none and the sins of Judah and they shall not be found for I will pardon them whom I reserve. Those that God sets aside, draws to Zion, he's going to pardon and reserve them for himself out of all this destruction that is about to come. So spiritual Israel, spiritual Judah, will be taken care of even as physical Israel is destroyed before our very eyes. Then it talks about battle and destruction. I won't read all of this. Uh, great destruction in 22, verse 23. How is the hammer of the whole earth asunder and broken? Uh, that could be no one but this country. We're the hammer of the whole earth. There's no one else that's hammered on whoever they want, wherever they want. And broken. How has Babylon become a desolation among the nations? That which was rich, that which was sought after, that was envied, made people jealous. And yet it was the hammer of the whole earth is going to be destroyed. I have laid a snare for you, and you were also taken, O Babylon, and you were not aware. Most of our people today are not aware of what's happening. They got their little job, making nine, ten bucks an hour, and they got their TV and their sports, and that's about all they care about. I mean, in day-to-day -day life. Yes, they care about their families and so on, but their attention is not on what God is and what God is doing and what's wrong and how to fix 
It's on just living and enjoying life. You are not aware. You are found and caught because you have striven against the eternal. The way we live in this country is against God because it is not God's way. And if it's against God, God will put it down and destroy it. And if we insist on being part of it, he will destroy us along with it. He's brought forth the weapons. It says, uh, destroy her utterly, verse 26. Let nothing be left. Slay her bullocks. The day of their visitation has come. Verse 28, the voice of them that flee and escape out of the land of Babylon to declare in Zion the vengeance of the eternal our God, the vengeance of his temple. He is going to build a spiritual temple out of people whom he's called. They're going to go to Zion area, and they will declare the vengeance of God's temple upon the world and be hated of all nations and all peoples on earth as a result. So he's going to build a spiritual temple, and I now believe almost without reservation that a physical temple will also be built, and it will be declared out of it about God against the world. And it will, it will be at some point defiled when the abomination of desolation is set up, so the physical temple will be defiled and the spiritual temple will flee for their lives to the mountains of the original Judea, as it says in Matthew 24. Let's see, verse 31, Behold, I am against you, O you most proud, says the eternal God of hosts. I don't know of any nation that's been more proud than this one. And in one way, I don't know that there's been a church on the earth that's been more proud than God's church. We have been self-righteous, and God has blown us apart. And now he is looking for those who will humble themselves and come before him and say, I'm ready to serve you with all my heart. I'm ready to do what you want done. And there's only going to be a small remnant of whom God called and made into his church, who will humble themselves before God and say, whatever you say, Lord, I'm ready to do it. Show me the job. I'm here. Let's get it done. The most proud shall stumble and fall, and none shall raise him up, and I'll kindle a fire in his cities, and shall devour all round about him. Verse 33, thus says the eternal of hosts, the children of Israel and the children of Judah were oppressed together, and all that took them captives held them fast. They refused to let them go, just as ancient Egypt did. They don't want us turned loose. They want us as their slaves. They want us in bondage. And yet God has told us to get loose from that. Then it talks about the destruction that will come I'll go down over that, not read it. Let's go down to chapter 51 and pick up a few more things here. Thus says the Eternal, Behold, I will raise up against Babylon and against them that dwell in the midst of them that rise up against me a destroying wind. And I will send to Babylon fanners that shall fan her and shall empty her land 
for in the day of trouble they shall be against her round about. So a, a conspiracy against us or a coalition against America as we form coalitions against Iraq and various ones, we're going to have a coalition against us. They're going to come and destroy this land. Slain shall fall, land of the Chaldeans, verse 4, verse 5, for Israel has not been forsaken. It, isn't it interesting when it's talking here about Babylon, every so many verses it starts talking about Israel and about God's people. Where are God's people and where is Israel? In the middle of the land that is declared by God to be Babylon. That's why it talks about us here. For Israel has not been forsaken, nor Judah of his God, of the Lord of hosts, though their land was filled with sin against the Holy One of Israel. So even within this sinful nation, God has not forsaken his people. Flee out of the midst of Babylon, and deliver every man his soul. Be not cut off in her iniquity. Same thing it says in Revelation 18.4. Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins and her plagues. If we keep sinning, then God says we will be a part of the plagues as well. Verse 7, Babylon has been a golden cup in the eternal's hand that made all the earth drunk. The nations have drunk of her wine, therefore the nations are mad, gone crazy, and they're angry. Because we had such promise of how our capitalist democratic system would bring peace and wonderful lives to everybody on earth. And now our system is coming apart and this great democratic capitalistic experiment is turning out hollow and empty. And all of these people that we promised peace, safety, happiness and prosperity to are beginning to realize that we are the ones that are destroying life for people on earth. Babylon is suddenly fallen and destroyed. Howl for her. Take balm for her pain. If so be, she may be healed. Put some salve on it. See if it will do any good. We would have healed Babylon, but she is not healed. Would I, had I the possibility, the opportunity, try to save this country? I grew up here. I love the mountains and the hills and the rivers and the prairies and the land that God gave us. And I love the people of this land. And yet, we have gone ungodly. Could I? Would I save it if I could? You bet I would, wouldn't you? We don't want to see this destruction come. We want to see peace and prosperity and happiness. And we'd love for it to be the land of the free and the home of the brave. But it's not anymore. You can't do anything about it, can you? Utterly frustrating. She is not healed. Forsake her, and let us go every one into his own country. For her judgment is reached unto heaven and is lifted up even to the skies. Our sin, our iniquity, has reached God in heaven and he's unhappy. And you know, even we here, we're out here and there across this country, and the promise, the center of the promised land, I believe now, was here in the southwest. 
and we've begun to forsake that country we were born in, whatever state it was, and come here to where God started it all and where he says he will protect. Forsake her. Get away from all that because it's coming down. There's one area, one place. I will protect those who will serve me. Isn't that exciting to know and understand? And I am so thankful for it when I do mix with people that are out in this world a little bit, just casually have a chance to talk with them for a little while, and I see their frustrations, and they have no answer whatever. But we have answers. We know how we can not only survive, but thrive. We know how we can be an example to the rest of the world and be used of God in His plan and His purpose to ultimately help bring peace to the whole world. We see the plan. Things may not happen exactly when and how we imagine, but it doesn't matter because it's all here. And what we do have, instead of being frustrated at what we might not have or it doesn't happen exactly, be so thankful for what we do have. The opportunity that God has given us, the understanding that is here, so that we can prepare ourselves, and some of our children at least, and for those who will come soon, to be able to survive what is about to happen when all of this turns loose. And every day it's getting more and more obvious it's going to turn loose. More and more prognosticators are, going, are beginning to say it's going to happen before 2010 is over. Some are saying 2011. You know 2011 isn't very far away now. We're almost halfway through this year, suddenly. It just goes by so fast. Verse 10, The Eternal has brought forth our righteousness. Come and let us declare in Zion the work of the Eternal, our God. His work in our lives and the work that He is about to do here for the sake of the church and the world. We can be the healers of the breach if we will depart from Babylon in every way and not cling to it. What good does it do to leave if you bring it with you and cling to it once you get here? How does that help anything? Verse 13, O you that dwell upon many waters, abundant in treasures, your end is come, and the measure of your covetousness. Coveting material things is the American way. And that covetousness is about to come to an end because everything that we have coveted, desired, and lusted after is going to be taken away. It won't exist anymore. Let's take a few minutes. I, I've got a couple more scriptures. I was thinking of going to Isaiah 47 and 48, which echoes some of this, and also perhaps Matthew 24 and Luke 21, because it talks there of famines and earthquakes and various things coming, and we see suddenly, don't we, a, a tremendous increase in volcanic activity and earthquakes, tornadoes, floods. It seems like it's just coming more and more the last few months, and I think that's going to continue to increase because that's what God says will happen before all these things come to pass. Wars and rumors of wars. 
Uh, there is one here in Jeremiah 51. Oh, yeah, I wanted to get this. Uh, verse 45, My people go you out of the midst of her and deliver you every man his soul from the fierce anger of the eternal. And lest your heart faint, and you fear for the rumor that shall be heard in the land. A rumor shall both come one year, and after that in another year shall come a rumor and violence in the land, ruler against ruler. Now we've been hearing rumors, haven't we, about things that are going on, and now we hear more and more rumors, and now we see not physical violence yet, but verbal violence beginning to happen between the governors of the states and the national governors. We're beginning to see battle lines drawn, states everywhere passing rules, telling the feds to get out of our land, give us our BLM and Forest Service and parkland back. Uh, we're going to keep the illegals out if you won't do it. Uh, we're going to manufacture guns in our state and your rules don't apply because if we keep them in the state, they won't be registered. And all kinds of new laws are being generated by the states as they begin to knock heads with Washington. And as I said earlier, this is going to lead to violence. It's verbal violence now, and it's going to increase and get worse, and it will turn into physical violence. And then we're going to see the quality of life in this nation go down fast. And the economy is going to crash, and we are going to be invaded by foreign powers. And 90% of the people in this nation are going to die. There is a way out. You know the way, and I know the way. And it's centered here. And people are going to come here. And you and I have been given a commission. We're going to see increasing tension. I think we're going to see an attack on Iran. They're beginning to beat those war drums more and more. And I think that fulfills uh, Daniel 8, about destroying one horn over there of the Medo-Persian Empire and then the other horn, and then we get our horn broken. I think that's about to come. How long it will be, I don't know, but I think we're going to see in the next 12 to 24 months some very dramatic changes in life in this country. Very dramatic. I'm not going to pick a date, but it seems that it is going to come pretty rapidly now because the cracks are getting bigger and bigger. And we're absolutely bankrupt and deeper in debt than you can possibly even imagine. And we're going to pay the piper. And the whole world is going to gloat over it. So, do we just sit here? Or what do we do? What is our mission? What is our job? What is our goal? What should we be doing? I think we need to review that a little bit, just for a few minutes here, and comprehend and have a plan. If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And we don't want to fall for what is about to happen to this country. We want to have a plan to get away from it, to get out of it, to do the best we can to serve God and prepare ourselves to do the work He wants done to declare in Zion the work of the eternal. Now, God has given us, I think, that responsibility, and more will come. 
And we have to fulfill our part of it. We have to do what God brought us here to do, to prepare. Now, first of all, first level, we need to prepare ourselves spiritually. We need to overcome any apathy, any Laodicean, any ho-hum approach, and truly seek God with our whole heart, because that's the way he says we will find him. And I've said this many times, but, you know, we are so human, and it is so easy to relax. But we need to make sure that God is the center of our lives, that we put him first. Now, yes, we must work, and we must make a living, and we must take care of this, and we have our daily cares and routines. And the way we do those reflect our uh, devotion to God and to his way. He made us human. He made us have to do human things. But in this book, he instructs us how to go about doing those human things so that we do them in a godly way as opposed to the rest of this world, which does them in a carnal, human, selfish way. So we have to learn to do them in such a way as to help each other, to prepare to help the rest of the world, to be prepared to be a mother to the whole world. An example for a while, and then a mother to the whole world. That takes some doing. You who have children or have had children, know how hard it is to properly parent children and to give them the time and the attention and the help and the encouragement and the example and everything that children need. And it is a tough job. It's not an easy thing to do to rear children properly. We have our frustrations with it. Because they don't always do what we want them to do and they don't always have the attitude we want them to have any more than we always have the attitude God wants us to have. So for everybody, it's tough. And God made it tough. And he said through much tribulation, trial, trouble, and, you know, on and on, enter the kingdom of God. And we are trying to rear children now at a time when the world is trying to pull them every direction, and we have to pull them the other direction. And we get frustrated, and then we want to compromise and say, well, we can't take it all away from them, or they'll rebel. Well, if you give them half of it, they're going to go get the other half anyway. That's not the right approach. That doesn't work. You can't tell your children, well, we're trying to obey God, but you can have one leg in the world. That's okay. No, they've got to get both legs out of the world. You've got to take your children away from this world, or they will go into it. We've seen that happen in the past. You can't let them play around with this world. Do you expect to see them protected? It says that if you honor your father and your mother, you will be protected for the obedience of the parent. But even a child is known by his deeds and his actions and his attitudes. So we need to be, as Abraham did, teaching our children the right way instead of saying, well, okay, we better let them do this and this and this, otherwise they'll go the wrong way. No, teach them the right way. Live the right way. Spend time with your children doing the right things. Even as the guy in the world said, I made him leave his iPod home and go out on the mountain and listen to the birds. The kid didn't want to do that. He wanted to take the world with him wherever he went. 
We need to seek God, number one. Number two, I think we need to be returning to his preferred lifestyle as much as is possible. Now, he did tell us in Zechariah 2 and 3, the villages would need to be built with men and cattle. And he says at the end of Zechariah 3, during this time, as the world is beginning to wind into a tight ball that is going to fly apart, that each would have his own vine and fig tree. Now, God has blessed you and me incredibly by bringing us out into this desert land. And it's a harsh land. It isn't a place where crops just spring up and grow. But it is a place that he is at some point going to create miracles in pools in the desert and show the world that he can turn things around. Meanwhile, we're here to establish a beachhead and prepare a place the people will eventually come to. Now, God expects us to do the best with what we have to do with. I would love it if at the end of this service we walked outside and we were in the Garden of Eden. That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? But that's not what God has decreed so far. So what he has given us to this point, he expects us to do with. And I think he gave us the understanding and the wisdom to get out and into a desert, mountain, wilderness area like the Bible describes, a voice crying in the wilderness, if you will, spiritual and physical. Works both ways. And he wants us to return to the best way of life for human beings as much as we can. Now, it's hard to make a living on an acre or two of ground right now with clay and sand, but he's given us at least that much apiece, and he's given us an abundance of water underneath it. We're not to waste it by watering in the middle of the day and throwing it up in the air to evaporate like a fountain, but to use it carefully, to use it wisely, but to use it. <clears throat> Someone suggested maybe we should have kind of a 4-H program. I think it's a good idea. Parents maybe could get together, could form something on the pattern like the 4-H is, and we could have contests with animals and crops, get the children interested in growing things, both in the ground, on trees, and animals. You know, they want something to do, so they play Farmville on a screen that is not reality. It is not actuality. It doesn't mean anything, and it's not the right way to live. But, you know, you replace what the world has for them with something they can be actively involved in. And God wants every man to have his own vine and fig tree and live off the land as much as possible. Now, I know it's real easy to go to Walmart or Costco or somewhere and buy packaged junk. And I say junk when I'm talking about beef and turkeys and chickens and all of that. It, for the most part, is trash full of chemicals and junk. And we have the opportunity to raise those things and do it here. But it's easier to take money and go there and just have the package rather than have to pull all the feathers out and the guts and do it yourself. But we need to learn those things. Our children need to learn God's way of living and His and the whole world, the whole millennium is going to be an agricultural system. There will not be big cities. 
There will not be all these technological things that we have that distract us from real life. We have an opportunity here with land and water to work with our children to teach them how to make something grow. Teach them how to milk a cow. Teach them how to do these things. And it doesn't really help a lot if you just make them go do chores. They need to see you learning. Why, when you have an opportunity here, like God has given us, how much time does it take to even get on the computer or wherever and learn about real seeds and what are the best kinds? To learn about real fertilizers and what are the best kinds? To learn how to test your soil? To learn what your soil needs to make it productive? You know, that takes time and energy to do, but it's real. How to raise a chicken. Instead of just so-and-so needs so many chickens on Farmville. Well, I'll just send them a little thing here, or however they do it. And then they capture your children, because then Facebook and all of those that have all these little games start having little things that you have to order and pay for. And so you get sucked into their financial side of it. And then once the kid gets one, he wants some more. And then they have something else that they advertise. And pretty soon, you've got another deal that you can't afford that's ridiculous and doesn't need to be anyway. Why not let them have real chickens? A real cat? And they can compete among themselves to see who can have the fattest, best, biggest, whatever the standards are. We could help them do those things instead of letting them just bring the world in. And I'm not saying we ought to get rid of every screen. Even some of these things we need to learn about, we can get off a screen because there's an awful lot of information there. But why not make it productive time where you actually learn something about how to do something real that will produce and make food? You know, it's not going to be long until the store, Walmart, Costco, is not there. Town will not be there. Then what are you going to do? The people in this earth, I mean this nation, one-third of them are going to die of famine and pestilence. Nothing to eat. And they will die of starvation. A third of them will die from the sword that comes into the land. Chopped and shot to pieces. A third will be taken into slavery and not even wanted there, and most of them will die in slavery. We are among the few that understand there is a way out of that, that there's a better way to live, and that when those other people go to the store and there's nothing there, we will have learned how to produce food right here around our homes. Is it worth it? Do you want to starve like they're going to starve? God does help those who help themselves. We can waste a lot of time playing worthless games on computers when we could, as a family perhaps, get on and get the books, get the magazines, get the right places on the computer to find out what's real. And then go out and actually do it and make Water it and weed it and make it happen 
and learn how to deal with the bugs, learn how to deal with the bad soil, and make it where it works. There's a challenge there. Now, it's easy to sit here around and have this barren land around us and just go on. Well, yeah, we do have to have jobs. Because right now, you still have taxes to pay and gas to buy and, you know, electricity to pay for and all these things that this modern society has. But let us understand that this is all going away pretty soon. And God would have us as prepared as possible. Now, there's going to come a time when it's more than we can handle. But I was talking to a lady just the other day I ran into. And she was, she was going to the store. She didn't know anything about God. She said, all this junk's made in China. It's full of hormones and it's full of uh, antibiotics. It's full of this. It's full of that. She's like... I, I've taken a trusted American brand that's been around for 80 or 100 years that I know and knew from childhood when everything was made in America. And now I look at the label and this thing that I trusted came from China, came from Chile, came from Mexico, where there are no standards. She says, I looked at a stainless steel pot I wanted to cook in, made in China. She says, they put all kinds of garbage in that stainless steel. It's not real stainless steel, but it's got polluted with mercury and lead and you name it. It comes over here. She says, so I went to look for something made in Germany where it might not have all the pollution in it. But even people in the world are waking up, brethren. They know we're in a polluted, sick world. Do you know that one-third of Americans now being born are going to have diabetes? And half of all those who are coming into the country are going to have diabetes? That's the projection. One-third of our people already have cancer before they die. This has all happened in the last 50 years. And it's getting worse. And yet we just keep eating that junk. And I don't mean junk food. <laughs> you know, I'm not talking about donuts here necessarily. I'm talking about the stuff that's supposedly good vegetables and good meat. It's getting harder to find. We have a golden opportunity here to learn how to do it right. And maybe to learn it in time to even preserve ourselves when everybody else is starving to death. We have plenty to do. Plenty to be busy with. Plenty to be teaching our children and helping them learn. They may, some of them, go right on into the millennium. They may need to be leaders there. Well, I'll tell you what's going to be going on there. Agriculture. Wouldn't it be nice to know ahead of time how to do things and help your neighbors so they could learn too? I'm not angry. I'm trying to help us see a vision an opportunity to get our children involved, to teach them how to take care of animals, to teach them how to grow food. God made the earth, and God made it to grow beautiful things. And we need to get attached to God's green, brown earth, learn how to make it green. Those are noble 
Those are honorable goals and desires. To be real in life. And if we want to set up some things, you parents want to get organized and have kind of a little 4-H club or something like that to help the children get excited about it so they can get a blue ribbon for doing something real instead of a blue ribbon on a TV screen because they gave some chickens to so-and-so on Farmville or whatever. Let's get real. Let's get down to life. How's it working for us? We let the children imbibe in things of the world and they begin to turn to the world. Let's begin to teach them real things about life and opportunity and what produces something that is food without all the artificial junk that the world is putting in it. Corporate America has in mind to kill us all. And they make food, I say quote unquote food, to give us that will destroy our health and kill us. And when you feed your children a lot of the stuff that's coming out of those stores, it is a slow poisoning to death. Now, I can't say at this point that we can get away from all of it, but we can get away from some of it, and we can be moving in the right direction. So let's get our lives in order spiritually before God. Let's begin to return to the lifestyle that he says will be right here at the end and be preparing ourselves to be ready for the gathering when it comes. Now, villages have to be built. I don't know how. I don't know exactly where. I don't know how this will work out, but I know God has a plan, and I'm searching for some of the answers. So we know we have a big job ahead of us, but there are things we can be doing now to be getting in line with the way that we ought to be living, to be interactive with gardens, with animals. That's real. Animals are sweet and lovely and cuddly and feathered and whatever, and they have interesting personalities. When I was a kid, there he goes again. We didn't have TVs. I used to just sit and watch the goats. I used to sit and watch the chickens and how they did. I built corrals and pens for them just as a little boy. and wouldn't want to show them anybody today, but I, was in, I had to be involved in that stuff because that's what there was. So how can we create it? It's just that this other life that Babylon has provided is so easy and it's so addictive and it's hard then to be real and to create real things. You can't eat anything you produce on Farmville. Wouldn't it be neat to, go, to teach your children how to go out and stick something in the ground and have something grow up that they can eat? Some of you grew up in the city and you may be 60, 70, 80 years old and you still haven't learned any of that just because of where you were and the circumstances. We're here to develop a community of people who can live together in peace and produce the kind of life that God would have around the world and to be an example to them. There's a challenge for you. So what to do? There's plenty to do. And there'll be plenty more to do once God begins to open things up and we see where and how it needs to be done. Meantime, this world around us is just going to get worse and worse and worse until it finally falls apart, totally collapses, and this country goes into captivity, and there's only one place 
that you can be doing what you ought to be doing and know that God will be with you and help you survive. And I believe that place is right around the original Jerusalem and Zion at the heart of the promised land. Who else knows what you know? We have opportunity to get real, to get with it, and to provide and prepare. And others will come, and they're going to need what we can do. So it is a matter of love of our brothers and our sisters who are out there who don't have any clues. We're not clueless. Perhaps we're a bit rudderless. So I'm trying to steer us in a direction that would be good for us to go so that we can please God and help mankind. And we've been given opportunity here. So let's not look opportunity in the eye and then pick ourselves up and go another way and miss out on the opportunity God has given us. That's plenty for today.